Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm, my name is Tim Mitra, I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined by Aaron Bay in Whitby, Ontario. Hello there. And I'm also joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And I'm joined by Mark Rubens, and I dare say in San Jose, San California. San Jose, California. Hey everybody. Hey, how you doing? Alrighty, so um, interesting week. Lots of uh, reviews have hit the streets about things. And uh, But before we get into some of the new hardware discussions, um, which we touched on last week, of course, um, I want to talk about some follow-up items. And one of the things that we talked about last week was um, the decision by the developer of BB Edit to remove their app from the Mac App Store. Um, because of for a number of reasons, not any one particular reason, but but things like you know not having a proper engagement with the clients, um, with customers, not having any uh, methods for doing proper updates and upgrades, and not having trial versions. Which I know BB Edit used to, BB Edit has a BB Edit Lite program. I, I think that's just come back. In fact, I think today they announced that uh, BB Edit 11 is out and it's not on the App Store. Um, so, Aaron, do you want to? kick off um, some discussion about the exodus from the Mac App Store? Well, we talked about this last week. I guess the follow-up here is that we have a blog post here from Millen. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the idea is it's just basically supporting his evidence and, you know, just pointing out that Apple hasn't done anything about it and, and most certainly will not do anything about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's he's just enumerating basically the issues that are at the root of why the Mac App Store is such um, a difficult marketplace for existing developers to make a living. And, right. Um, so he talks about trials. The fact that there are no trials means that prices have to be lower to lower the risk for people to try the software. He proposes a way that Apple could easily implement a trial system. Many people have proposed similar systems, so there's really not much new in the way that he's laying it out here. Mm -hmm. Upgrade pricing, paid upgrades, uh, impossible now in the App Store, but uh, if Apple could implement a way to do that, that would make a huge bit of difference. He also yeah. proposes a way that Apple could implement that. Again, nothing new. Right. The other issue is sandboxing. Huge problem because... Uh, you can't actually do everything that you want to do because the entitlements are not there for particular categories of apps. They just so can you can you? We were talking about a bit about this before the before the broadcast before you joined us, and we weren't really sure what the implications of sandboxing are. Can you give some background on that? Sure. Well, um, so sandboxing is a system where apps are prohibited from performing certain tasks uh, without having the actual specific entitlements set out and this this entitlement system um are explicit permissions to do certain things mm -hmm. um i was just working on a mac app myself this evening and uh, before we were podcasting mm -hmm. and in xcode you can look at the capabilities tab and there is this app sandbox section and it lists the all of the entitlements that you can check off right and add to your app if if you try to do something that isn't checked off, then Apple will reject your app. Also, if you try to do something that there is no entitlement for, Apple will reject your app. <laughs> okay? Now, now, is this the same set of capabilities that are available? Like, I'm looking at the iOS version of Xcode right now. Is sure. it the same on the Mac side? Or? Uh, well, yeah, I think it's a little different. Like iCloud, Game Center, Passbook, uh, all that kind of stuff. No, no. Um, it, there's an app sandbox. It is different from the right. iOS side because it's on the Mac. And let me list some of them off for you. Sure, okay. Um, network, incoming and outgoing are separate entitlements. On the hardware side, access to the camera, microphone, USB, printing. These are separate entitlements. So if you mm -hmm. want your app to print, you have to actually add the printing entitlement. Mm -hmm. App data, things like contacts, location, and calendar. iOS developers will be familiar with that. And then mm -hmm. file access, and there's various classes of permission that you can add entitlements for, both to read only and or to read write in particular directories. So mm -hmm. giving the user the ability to choose a file off the file system, that's a separate right. entitlement. Access to the downloads folder, the pictures folder, the music folder, the movies folder. These are all separate entitlements that you can request read only or read write access to. 
Right. Um, now, if you're if you're like a shoebox app and you're just going to write assets into the uh, the documents folder within your app sandbox, mm-hmm. then you like can, an iPhoto or something like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. that's um, that's doesn't require an entitlement because you're you're within your app sandbox. So mm-hmm. that's similar concept to what happens on iOS just by default. So. If you want to do anything that's not in this list of entitlements, you're out of luck. You can't go in the App Store because really? Apple requires that your app be sandboxed. So there's whole categories of apps that just won't fit in there. Things like uh, system utilities, anything that requires root access. You know, think mm-hmm. of like a, a Super Duper app, for example. You know, right. uh, Dave Nanian's backup software. Um, all kinds of different apps that that you you couldn't even get in the store. Um, and then there are apps, uh, we heard about Coda from Panic. Uh, mm-hmm. they actually published a blog post, oh gosh, I don't know, sometime within the last year, I should add it to the show notes, where they explained how difficult it was for them to, um, to sandbox Coda and ultimately were unable to do it despite heavy cooperation with Apple. Right. Now, Quota is a, is a web authoring tool, is it? Yeah, not? it's, a, it's yeah. an HTML editor, basically, with uh, a bundled file transfer application. Hmm. So think text editor plus transmit. Right. That's basically what uh, what Coda is. And so they, I can't remember if they've either pulled it from the App Store. Yeah, Coda, Coda 2 just launched this week. Yeah, was it and on it's, the... It's, no, not on the App Store. Not on the App Store, right. Yeah, it's on their website. I think at the time they were saying that they they were going to have separate functionality for the Mac App Store version, like lesser functionality, um, mm. yeah, as a way to skirt the, the rules of the uh, the sandboxing. So, uh, really unfortunate, and and it's just one of those decisions that Apple made, and you can see why they made it. It's it's for you know the, the security of the operating system, right? Because with explicit sandbox rules for apps you have the higher-grade security that users have come to expect from iOS, but because it's a desktop computer where you can, quote, sideload apps, (laughs) um, Apple wants to ensure that at least the apps that you get from the Mac App Store um, are secure. And this is their way of doing it, but they really need to come up with uh, a much broader selection of entitlements to allow apps to do more. That's the argument being made here. Yeah. Well, and you know, users can always get around that kind of stuff because they had that—is it—is it called Gateway or something like that? Their uh, or Guard? Was their 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 security piece called Gatekeeper? Gatekeeper. Right. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, I can't tell you the number of apps I've had to go in and turn Gatekeeper off to now allow me to even download an app that's not on the App Store. Um, but yeah, Apple sort of always had a, a, a way of protecting people, and they also have the. If you download an app on Safari, you know they, they they sign it in such a way that you have to authorize it and to to be able to un, uncompress it. That's right. Yeah. By default, uh, when a user installs macOS, the gatekeeper setting is such that the it has to be a signed app by a, a registered developer. Sure. Yeah. Yep. And if it's not, then you won't be able to open it unless you right click on it and select open. Now that has nothing. That signing of uh, being a signed developer has nothing to do with whether your app is coming from the App Store either. You can That's be a signed right. developer without that as well. Uh, yeah. I just uh, just to clarify, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, any any developer can can have a developer ID to sign an app with, but right. that app would not be distributed through the App Store. All right. So okay. if you were like a traditional shareware developer, for example, like you know it's 1993 again, good old days when a single indie developer can can make a good living selling a single app. Remember that? No. Too bad I wasn't there for that. Uh, anyway. Um, so that developer would have a developer ID, basically a certificate from Apple that they can sign their app with and then distribute it themselves. Right, right. And, and then there, that's sort of a vetting process as well, right? Well, no, For, no, it's not really right, a vetting it? process. You just have to buy the Mac developer program. And... No, but I, what I mean is it's supposed to be a, a vetting pro, pro, process as, as opposed to just somebody who writes an app and sticks it out on, on a website and, and you know the for the it's supposed to make the end user feel a little warm and fuzzy about that kind well, of well what it here. actually does is yeah. provide Apple a way to yank the rug out from under you if you turn out to be a bad developer right so right, if they right. get if they get reports that um, that your app is um, you know is hacking people's Macs then they can revoke your developer certificate and your app will no longer run like out of the box yeah right right now, I, I think, uh, was it Jaime last week, made a point about the Mac 
itself being a low revenue source for Apple in terms of like the Mac app stores is kind of negligible in terms of what, what kind of profitability Apple is going to make from it. Cause you know, notwithstanding the fact that they just, they just reported record sales of, of Macs um, in the last quarter. Um, wasn't it right? Jaime? we were making a point about last week about the fact that, um, that uh, the Mac as, as a platform is nothing compared to iOS in terms of, in terms of sales. And therefore why would Apple really go out of its way to make any changes? Is that what your point was? I mean, not quite the full flavor. I mean, there's, there's the developer side of it where, um, you're really going to have to focus on professional and prosumer bits because you, mm. you don't have the, as much of the consumer pieces going on, um, on the Mac, you know, something like steam for games, uh, aside, um, but from Apple's standpoint, um, it's definitely not their their huge focus, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the mm-hmm. larger volume of of things that's go- going on and the replacement of devices in the iOS world is is understandably something that they'll look at a little bit more closely. Right, right, right. Well, it's funny because you know if you look at the Mac as a business and you only compare it to the iOS side then yeah, it really is small. But I think Apple has telegraphed very clearly that they care about the Mac, right? I mean, they're plowing a lot of resources into hardware development and the operating system. They they do demonstrate repeatedly that they care very much about the Mac as a platform. Um, And I guess the other point is that the issues that we're talking about with the Mac App Store are very much similar to the issues that we have with the iOS App Store. You know, aside from the sandboxing part, but I mean, like no trials, no upgrades, uh, no communication with your customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these these issues are are part and parcel of both app stores. So it's not a question of you know how big is the Mac market and does Apple care about it. Um, it's it's their it's their belief system for how how they think that apps should be distributed. So and so that said, what do you, what do you think about what a lot of developers are, are complaining about the fact that the Mac App Store is a difficult environment to work in? Like, why would you write if you could if since you can write an app and, and distribute it in other other ways? Why would you, other than you know, in, in, maybe you don't you don't have the marketing experience or whatever. Like you're not a BB editor or bare bones, or you're not a you're not a panic that's got some history in terms of being able to distribute software. You know, have payment channels, have support services already. Like you're a little guy, little Mac and D guy you talked about before, you know, who has no marketing savvy and, and has no way of collecting monies and things like that. Going into the Mac app store may be an attractive choice for them, right? Uh, in terms of like, but but then how are they going to be taken seriously? I think it was release notes this week was talking about the same sort of thing. And um, they were saying that... Uh, um, it's kind of like the Mac app store is going to become the sort of, you know, novelty app store, you know, where the serious apps are still going to be sold in, in traditional channels. I think that's already the case. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, you, the scale of the apps that you can put on the Mac app store is, is just smaller, you know, you know, like I, I had uh, an issue last week where I upgraded to Yosemite. This is an example. So I upgraded to Yosemite and I decided that I would use spotlight Instead of Launch Bar, which, mm-hmm. oh, sorry, Alfred. That's the one I was using. <laughs> been through them all. But uh, I've been using Alfred, uh, which is just a, a macro tool, right, that generally replaces Spotlight. And mm-hmm. I decided to go back to Spotlight and just live with it for a while. One of the features sure. that I had from Alfred was the ability to eject all of my, my disks. Right. Okay, so if I want to unplug my MacBook and take it away, I want to eject all my disks. So there was just like a keyboard command. Well, without that in the tool now, I had to find another way to do that. And so I went onto the Mac App Store and I found this little utility. It's called um, Quick Disk. And it was $1.99 and it looked pretty decent. And it just put a little menu bar extension up there with an eject all button. Mm-hmm. And it's it's um, it, it does what it says on the tin. It's got kind of a couple weird little flaws, but... You can tell that it's just a, a little tool. You get it on the Mac App Store. You spend a buck or two. And that, to me, is what the Mac App Store is today. Right, Like, right. if I wanted to go out and build, like, something like a Scrivener or a an Acorn uh, Pixelmator, 
you know, mm-hmm. even though those mm-hmm. those apps are on the store. Sure. Um, I I would really hesitate to to consider the Mac App Store as my primary uh, marketing channel for that distribution channel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like you'd really need to ha- to be able to plow more resources into marketing it and sell it from your own website too. But right, if, right. but if you don't do that, if you don't go into the Mac App Store, are you conspicuous in your absence to the average casual user? I don't think so. If you're so, if you're uh, just an everyday user looking for a, an image editor for the Mac, where's the first place you look? Probably the App Store, right? But but given the quality of search on the on the App Store, yeah. I think it's more likely that you go to Google. Maybe so. Yeah. yeah, or or you call someone else and ask them what they would do because yeah, I don't think I don't think the average apps I, I may be wrong, but I don't think the average Mac user even knows the Mac App Store is there. Mm. You know, like that. You know, they, they generally get their they get their Microsoft Office, they get their you know Adobe CS six or seven or Cloud or whatever it is. Um, you know, but they don't necessarily they don't know about Aircorn, they don't know about you know uh, GNU editors and things like that. You know. Um, and you know, I've all the time that I've ever been working on on Mac because I come from an IT background. I've always you know been on the command line and installing apps that way as well, right? That's a whole other world of of Mac apps that, that uh, we haven't even touched on, right? So no need to either right now. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I know, I get, I get that, but but um, but I'm just saying there's there's a lot of, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to skin a cat when you're talking about having an actual computer in front of you, and 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 this whole sort of iOSification of of the Mac experience kind of, you know, it's, it, it kind of dumbs it down to the point where, you know, like what was that thing they used to have for, um, easy launch or something like that that they used to put on back in the LC days, you know, a little uh, control had, strip, you mean? No, they had this little, yeah, before they had this launcher experience. Well, it's kind of like when you, when you do it, when you put parental controls on a Mac. Oh, you, I know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, you kind of, yeah. Yeah, it was really it was it was really trashy, but I mean it was it was a way of getting novice people to use a computer without you know you could leave them alone with it for a while and they wouldn't destroy it, right? Right. That was before <laughs> the dock, and the dock basically replaced that, right? That was yeah, classic Mac OS, yeah. and it was like a at ease or something. At ease, yes, that was what it was called. Yeah, yeah I'm just yeah. looking it up now. Back in those days, and you had like a launcher panel that came up, and you put and you could put apps on at ease, and and you know so if you were like a if you were if you were setting up a computer for your mom, for instance, you know, or my sister in one case. You would put up, uh, you'd put up this this easy bar, easy launch pad that they could just go to, and that's what they saw. Is they didn't even see the Finder; they saw that. Yeah, right? yeah. So, and there yeah. was even later an easy mode for the Finder. Yeah, okay. right, right. Anyway, right. I pasted a link into a Wikipedia article. You can add it to the show notes. Cool. Right. Up, I'll put I'll put one up for eWorld as well while, while we're at it. Oh, why not CyberDog? <laughs> you know what? 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 Are we just Cyber adding Dog. random uh, classic macOS tech. Hey, let's get a link Open in there from Mo- Mosaic while we're at it, right? <laughs> Okay, let's get back on topic. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't, I'm not sure that it has to be an either or kind of thing uh, with regard to the Mac App Store. I think as long as Apple allows non Mac App Store apps to be installed, I think the needs of, you know, professionals such as ourselves, you know, developers in particular, um, and the needs of, you know, inexperienced users will be met. So let's assume that the Mac app store turns into something like the iOS app store where it's by and large, uh, you know, casual computing, right? That's games. Mm -hmm. It's uh, relatively simple image editors and and music makers and whatnot. Um, That seems okay to me because that kind of user doesn't really need to be, you know, poking around with disc images. They really need somebody to kind of handhold them a little bit with, um, app reviews to say, yes, some, you know, some human being somewhere has looked at this and says, yeah, this seems like it's probably not going to hurt you. Yeah, um, yeah. Folks like us, we really don't need that. Right. Like we've, we've got our alternative methods and we can use our, our own good judgment. Um, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. plenty of, you know, consumer level people are going to want like, no, I just, just want it to work. I don't really want to have to worry about it. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, it's pretty clear that that's the type of user that Apple really cares about much more than, the expert user, uh, and, and you know, I don't know whether it's that ex- the Apple thinks the expert user will do just fine on their own, and they just need to help out their casual user more, or if you know, there's a whole lot more casual users, so the mon- that's where the money is. I don't know, but but it seems very clear in everything that Apple does that they are focused primarily on the casual user, 
and secondarily on the expert user. And so I, I think when a lot of these questions come up of, you know, why is the Mac App Store the way it is? Well, if you look at it through that lens of saying, well, they're just trying to make it easy for the casual user and not for the expert user, then it all kind of makes sense. Yeah, and that's a good point too because because if you take the whole Mac, the Apple Store, the retail store experience as an example, I, I'm a member of the Apple Consultant Network, and you know, so I have certain certifications. You know, I'm certified on servers and all that kind of stuff. Not that they exist anymore, but um, you know, a lot of consumers will will go into the Mac Apple Store and they'll buy like you know a bundle of stuff. They'll get a Mac and they'll get a printer and they'll get a hard drive and they'll get all the stuff that the genius quote unquote sells them right and and if they can't manage it themselves, they you know the the genius will go over and look up a, a number, or punch a postal code in or a zip code in, and find a local Apple consultant, and then pass that, give that name to the to the person, and you know then my phone rings the next day saying I've got all this stuff from the App Store. What do I do with it? You know, so they have got sort of that structure in terms of how to put together the pieces for people. They're not just selling them a bunch of stuff and then sending them out into the world to be on their own. They've got us, you know. Uh, they've got a, a, a network of people to sort of help them get to the next step. If they're not, if they're an average quote, a consumer, they're running a small office or something like that, and they need a hand getting everything set up, right? But so that's I think not it, a home user that you're talking about now. Like you're no, but about it, it does happen with home home users. I mean, not that I go into them, but you know, I have a, a few other consultants I work with that refer to sort of you know the house call guys too. But but yeah, no, it's like how to set up my how do I set up my time capsule? How do I you know? How do I set up my printer? And, and then, you know, my email is doing this. Or how do I sync my phone to my iCloud account? Those are the kind of tasks that, that can ha- get passed off once the person leaves the retail store, right? So, and Apple's got, I mean, you know, and, and like anything else that, any any other sort of third party that Apple kind of deals with, even though we're all, you know, allowed to use the Apple logo in our communications, we're just as in the dark as developers are from that perspective, you know? Um, you know, there's, there's certain rules that we're we're bound by to to behave within. You know, and, and you know we get we have the same sort of uh, we lament the same story that everybody else says. I wish Apple would make this easier for all of us, right? <laughs> it's it's a common cry, hue and cry throughout the whole Apple ecosystem outside of the actual Apple employees, right? Anyway, so uh, last week, you know, um, Apple announced um, some new gear. Um, the standouts were you know new Mac a new iMac but another one was the iPad Air 2 that some people are saying is a good um, thing but a lot of the reviews are coming out are, are, are actually speaking favorably about the the um, the actual product itself what do you do you have something to contribute there guys yeah um, I think the overwhelming opinion on the reviewers looking at the iPad Air 2 right that's what we're talking yeah. about here yep is that it's it's a it's an excellent improvement over the last generation device, but right. it is an incremental improvement. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's right. not interesting from a mainstream news media perspective, but uh, having having seen the performance numbers that are coming out now that the thing is in the wild, it looks like a really terrific upgrade uh, from a feed and speeds perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're we're seeing dramatically uh, faster performance and we're seeing uh, some features that nerds have been looking for in the iPad for a long time, chief among them two gigs of RAM uh, which is a huge deal I think. The max RAM that we've ever seen in an iOS device up until the iPad Air 2 is one gig of RAM. Right. So yeah. they finally doubled it and lots of people have been looking forward to that. So that you know, RAM is a huge constraining factor in iOS uh, yeah. because this operating system is very aggressive about shutting down apps once the system runs out of memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about Safari, the number of tabs that you have to reload whenever you come back to the app. So people get pretty excited about that. I think it's a good deal. Um, I'm not planning to get one because I've got the Air 1, whatever people are mm-hmm. calling it, the original Air. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not time to upgrade. But one of the things I wanted to talk about was the Verge review of the iPad Air 2, which mm-hmm. spent some time talking about the, the the hardware features, just like we said. But there's much more to be said about the iPad Air and the iPad in general. And this is kind of something that's been on my mind for years, uh, for almost as long as we've had an iPad. Mm-hmm. And so if you forgive the rant for a few moments... I will regale you with what my opinion is about the iPad. 
Okay. So we've had this um, long-standing sense that the iPad was going to be a really big deal. When it first launched, Apple sold millions of them, tens of millions, and now hundreds of millions. They've sold 225 million iPads. Right. And we understand that these things are going out there in the field doing things that Apple and the rest of us never expected them to do. They weren't necessarily going to replace the PC, right? but they are almost PC-like in the way that they are being adopted out in the broader world. Well, they have replaced a number of Windows PCs from what the numbers tell you. Sure. Uh, yeah. we've, we've seen in the same period that the iPad has been out in the market, we've seen a decline in PC sales. Right. And you can see that if you look at the charts with the 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 line of PC sales going down and to the right, iPads going up and to the right. And so right. Um, this this is suggested a clear correlation between iPad, uh, iPad sales and PC sales. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's a direct comparison. I think that iPads are finding new opportunities out there. But a lot of us are looking at the iPad as sort of a new paradigm of computing. Right. We look at it as, like, how, how can this tool be used to enable computing as I do it on my desktop right. in more mobile contexts or uh, more informal contexts. So right. because the iPad is so portable that you can literally take it anywhere, how can I use it in places where I wouldn't use a Mac, for example? Right. Now, that's the hope. But what's happened over the years is that I feel like the iPad software, and I'm talking about iOS as it exists on the iPad, has consistently let me down in that regard. Not in not just the operating system, but the apps that have been made available for it. Mm-hmm. We've seen some standout examples of, of iPad apps that extend the boundaries of what you know the traditional iPad software allows you to do. Things like GarageBand, which is arguably better than the desktop analog. Right. But there aren't a ton of those examples, and I guess the best examples you could say are are much more niche, like GarageBand. If you're not into music, then that's probably not going to be very useful to you. But to step back and look at the operating system, it's basically, just like everybody said at the time, a blown-up iPod Touch, right? Um, We're not seeing a, a lot of special use cases and ways that you can really take advantage of the device. And sort of been a, a like a, a splinter in my mind to employ the matrix phrase um, thinking about it for all this time and in this review of the iPad 2 Nilay Patel kind of makes that point as well yeah. he's, he's saying you know the, the hardware it's terrific you know of course it is and we're, we're all in love with it it's great but here's where the problem is with the iPad um, it's really not pushing new boundaries on what you do with the iPad. And he proposes the idea that unlike a phone or unlike a Mac, for example, which are very personal devices, he suggests that the iPad is for sharing. Well, and yeah, and, and I've heard that argument a number of times. That in, in fact, our some of our apps that we built, I mean, Mark and I worked on an app uh, built for two people to use at once. I mean, uh, and that was before Two Life, but the idea was that it would be two, a couple sharing the iPad experience, kind of like, you know, reading a magazine together on the couch at the same time kind of thing. Um, yeah, I see what you're saying. Or, or even the ability to, you know, I could use the iPad for a bit and hand it over to you, you know, log out of it, you log into it kind of thing. Yeah, um, and that's just one example, right? Like yeah, the, yeah. the idea of supporting multiple users on a, on a single iPad, that's right. one idea. Um, having the operating system provide um, a, a better experience based on that larger display mm-hmm. where, you know, it's it's not really doing that right now. So, well, I, yeah, and if I sort of interject here, but in my case, um, if I didn't need the Mac to write uh, apps in Xcode, I think I've said this before, my go-to computer would be my iPad, right? Because uh, the number of things I would use it for. You know, and and the average user, I mean, back in the early days, you know, back in in, back in the dawn of time five years ago, when we were trying to knock Windows off of its pedestal, you know, we would say to a customer, like, what are the compelling reasons people use computers for? The the web, checking email, and maybe one or two other things, you know, doing office documents or something like that, right? And the iPad kind of fits right into that sort of field, you know, even using them as for reading books and magazines and that kind of stuff. And that's kind of sort of where 
the iPad would fit in. It's it's bigger than the phones. You've got more real estate to work with. You've got, you can lay out your apps in a much better way on the iPad. Um, and, you know, we talked about this when we first started the podcast, that it was kind of disturbing that Apple in Xcode is moving towards size classes and things like that. And, we're, and you raised the point about the fact that there's so much more space available on the iPad to be able to do do more things at once, you know, than, than you would on a traditional little tiny screen for an iPhone or, or, an, or a full-bodied computer like a Mac where you're going to get into Final Cut Pro and Cork Express and, you know, InDesign and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so... There's a lot to be said. I don't think I don't think that that um, it's it's the software isn't there for another reason, and that's because uh, I think um, Joe over at Release Notes mentioned earlier this week that Apple it's kind of hard with the App Store right now and the whole ecosystem that we're talking about for the last couple of weeks that it's hard for developers to write apps for the iPad specifically. You know, if it's if, unless it's a museum piece or something that's you know delivering a lot of visual content and text and that kind of or movies even, um, it's difficult for us to sort of justify spending the hundred thousand dollars it does it takes to build an iPad app to you know to do the surprise and delight for people, right? Uh, well, that's just it. I mean, we we were just talking about the Mac App Store and the challenges it presents to developers who put their apps there. And right. it's it's magnified on the iOS App Store for iPad developers in particular, mm-hmm. um, because of everything we've talked about: the lack of trials, upgrade pricing, uh, no contact with your customers, uh, and others. The, the The price of software is driven right down to the basement, and there's just no reason that a, that an, a developer would invest the incredible resources in developing a true breakthrough app for the iPad. Right, right. Um, and so that's why there aren't any. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. leaving aside examples like we just saw last week at the um, the iPad intro, uh, Pixelmator, seeing that uh, looks very interesting. But you know, even the demo that I saw suggested that, uh, you know, it was it, it looks okay. Um, but I I feel like they haven't really pushed the boundaries on what an iPad app can do. And I'm still kind of waiting for that to happen. I felt like when the iPad came out that we should have seen uh, someone that took the examples that Apple provided us and drove it way past that point. Um, And it's really even difficult to put your finger on, but it feels like interacting with the iPad still could be dramatically simpler. And I don't think anybody has stepped up and, and proven that yet. Well, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of cases, though, in, in the case of music apps. I mean, because obviously the the iPad, iOS, the chipset, you know, is very, and because it's the whole Mac ecosphere or Apple ecosphere, it's very easy to produce music and generate music sounds and samples and that kind of stuff on on um, on these devices. So, Korg, for instance, is a, is a company that builds specifically apps for iPad. They have music apps on both platforms, but they spend a lot of time building apps for the iPad because they've got more space to put tools for the for the musicians to use right um and there are there are some really compelling stuff like similar to what you were talking about with GarageBand, and there's also a whole there's an audio bus technology where you can have one app running in the background and, and you know as a source to another music app so there's a lot of in the case of music there's a lot of things that that can that apps that are out there that that are good for music but and they're not cheap they're like you know thirty dollars or forty dollars they're not <laughs> Yeah, no, seriously. Yeah, they're, they're not five or ten bucks. No, you know? but even thirty, forty dollars is cheap. From a iOS mentality perspective, that's a lot of money in but that, people's and minds. And this is exactly the problem. Yeah, I mean, I spent two thousand, three thousand dollars on a guitar, but I won't spend thirty dollars on a music app for my iPad. In fact, I do, but I know a lot of people who don't, right? And that's the problem. That's it in a nut right there. Because yeah. if if a developer is going to create an app. That could only be used by say ten thousand people, mm-hmm. and they're going to sell it for thirty bucks. That's mm-hmm. not—they're not, not going to make a living. You know. But is it really I, that different on the other platforms? I mean, other than games, which is a completely different story, and and actually, you could argue that games have done quite well uh, on the iPad and and actually mm-hmm. do command a much higher price point. Uh, on the PC platform, are there really that many people making a living off of just writing? Utility apps or programs? I, I don't you know. mean Windows? Yeah. I think back in the day there used to be. Yeah. Sure, mm. sure, but you know, but we're talking about today, and I'm just, I'm just wondering if 
if this this whole argument uh, about you know indie developers can't make money because of the app store is that really putting the blame in the wrong place is it really because of the app store or, or is it because of the way that customers view software these days I think I customers know. I don't know the I answer. think customers view software differently these days because of the app store there was a time before the app store. Sorry. Well, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's because it's because you know this whole race to the bottom thing we talked about last week, and we went through this whole freemium exercise where now if an app isn't free, people won't consider it, and the only way you can make money now is by having in-app purchases, and it seems like that's the majority of apps on on the app store right now. So it's kind of that whole race to the bottom has has sort of ruined it for everybody, if you will. You know what I mean? Like in terms of in terms of where people can go with this, right? Um, Medikite, for instance, uh, um, uh, Charles Perry, our buddy at Release Notes, he still sells. He's got some utilities. He writes for the iPad and he writes for the iPhone, and he sells the iPad version at a higher price point. You know, um, you know, like I, I, I don't quote me on this, but it's, it's like he charges nine dollars for a business utility app on the iPhone, and he'll charge fifteen or twenty dollars on on the iPad. And, and again, with the iPad, you get much more functionality in terms of how information is laid out and what you have access to. That's an example of someone who's been successful selling apps on the, on the iPad, right? But just to, to keep being playing devil's advocate here, sure, uh, sure it, it's one possible argument to blame it on the App Store, but it's another possible argument to blame it all on the web, right? The web introduced this concept of everything is free, to get the basic level, and if you want the premium, you have to pay for it. That was around for a long time before the App Store, and and that's the whole Google model. Uh, and it's, you know, I would I I would argue it's it's hard for it's just as hard for a web developer to put up a website and make a living off that website. Uh, it's just as hard for that person as it is for an iOS developer to do it. Well, I mean, yeah, and, and it could be argued that the web started out as free, and then and then when people realized that they had content and people were willing to pay for it, you know, people didn't. Uh, the web publishers didn't realize that there was money to be made there, and and because it was free for so long, it's hard. You know, they say it's hard to raise your prices, but at right. some point, some point, you have to draw a line in the sand and say, look, I'm raising my prices, and if and if you don't want to buy my software because I'm charging five or ten dollars, then I'm sorry, don't buy it, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And if you're making a niche product that is not available anywhere else and people want it, they'll they'll buy it. You know, I, I think I agree with Mark on this one. And I, I think that the web kind of already set the stage for um, prices dropping um, down to zero. And it was really the iPhone that exacerbated, or I should say sped up the process. Mm-hmm. Right, because it was wildly popular. Um, it's like you know, every house had you know a, a computer of some sort, like a desktop or a laptop, perhaps uh, around that point that the web was really getting hot. Sure, um, but we didn't have every individual having a unique device for themselves, and that's that they always carry with them, right? Right, and that that really sped things up. Uh, as you got so many people, especially, you know, as we've been talking about the, the consumer level type of person, instead of being a professional or a prosumer mm-hmm. and just sit back and think about it. What was the last great app that came out for the desktop platforms in the last 10 years? Can we include web apps? No, no, I'm talking about <laughs> native apps. And I mean, like first one, not like, you know, an update that you know, you know, version two or something that came out yeah. great. That um, wasn't a game, too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A yeah. non-game yeah. one. It's like, well, I, yeah. I can't think of one. Where's, where's the Photoshop equivalent? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Nothing within the last ten years, and that that certainly you know started around the time that the web became a thing that everybody just did on a daily basis. Sure, sure. And well, and then the whole there was a whole sort of exercise on the web where they were trying to do well. It's all software as a service now, but they were trying to do that back in you know the early days trying to get people to go to the web and use apps like you know a, a photoshop equivalent as an example not that there ever i can think of one but that was they were trying to get people to do documents in the cloud and that's where google is doing now right they're trying to, trying to usurp microsoft office by having google docs you know um and apple's doing the same thing in this in a certain way with iwork as well right right and i, I think the web folks quickly uh, have turned to software as a service. So you pay some sort yeah. of subscription fee to get access yeah. to a yeah. website. And we don't really have a great example of that working uh, in a consistent basis in the iOS world. 
because Apple certainly makes it a little bit difficult as a developer to do a recurring subscription. Well, yeah, no, and literally they had like I think I think I mentioned last week that that we our whole business model was around the whole concept of having subscriptions to the service we were providing, and then when we tried to do the uh, auto renewing subscriptions, Apple pulled it out and said, "No, that's only for newsstand. You can't do that in in the regular Apple ecosphere, right?" Exactly, and and even yeah. subscriptions that you could do if you wanted to do within the app, you had to use. Uh, Apple's purchasing model, which meant you gave them a 30% cut, which was non-trivial and is the biggest reason that uh, Microsoft didn't bring its uh, OneDrive services over because it refused to to play by the rules for such a long time until they finally caved in. Right. You're talking about the the Office 360 product that they have well, on, the, on Apple now. Well, the service iOS? that that backs that, right? So you yeah. you subscribe to to storage or or let's take a look at um, like Amazon and the Comicsology apps, right? Where you have to go somewhere else, you know, on the web, buy mm-hmm. the content, and then come back to the app, and you know that content is associated with your account, and you you get it. It's it's a inferior user experience to what could be possible. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's because these developers have decided that they didn't want to give the thirty percent. Understandably, didn't want to give the thirty percent to Apple on that recurring basis. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, but just uh, just on a side note here, Jaime, earlier you've, men- you've mentioned this before, and you mentioned it again today. Steam as a service is that. Can you sort of give a rundown on what Steam is about in terms of how people find games, get games, publish games? Yeah, so Steam is a uh, a service by a company called Valve. They're really famous for the um, Half-Life and Half-Life 2 series, mm-hmm. uh, amongst mm-hmm. others. Um, but they're making buku bucks with their Steam service. So Steam, you can just imagine as being the app store for um, enthusiast gaming. So right. not not Candy Crush. We're talking you know, more of like a Halo yeah. type of yeah. thing, right? Something that... You know, we we used to traditionally think of as gamer, but that has expanded to where everybody plays games. So it's not sure, a it's not a meaningful sure. term anymore. So instead of being the casual gaming, it's enthusiast gaming, where you typically are using a keyboard and mouse, or you're using um, also these these are controllers. Games for traditional desktops and 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 systems. They're not necessarily for like they don't get into the iOS or the Google Play world at all. Or right, right. Okay. Well, there's no way to do that on iOS, right? You you can't have. Uh, the other app store sitting there as an icon. Right. I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, so Steam is specifically for people who are building apps in, in Java or whatever other kind of languages and building them on, on the Unity and Unreal engines and stuff like that, but building them on desktop platforms. Right, running on Windows right. and, and Mac primarily. Right, right. Okay, curious. Yeah, I was just curious about that because, that, that, like you said, I I do hear about Steam and, and, and it's it's pretty popular among the gamer gamer channels I listen to, right? So... Okay. Well, speaking of the speaking of the App Store and uh, what's going on with it, some of the things that have been trending lately uh, amongst the developer community is kind of getting everybody's back up is is the time it takes to get your app submitted and reviewed. And and I, you know I could go on for a, a good rant about the whole new process with with uh, using the revamped um, iTunes Connect to try and get your apps up and and through and and. I don't think that the um, test flight stuff's ready, but but I think Jaime, you have a few things to say about the uh, um, app review process right now. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm very grumpy about that. So earlier, <laughs> I was espousing the virtues for users about you know some human being has looked at this app and said you know yeah it seems seems legit, right? right. Um, that's great. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't scale all that well, right? Um, and when you have events that come up, like a release of iOS or a release of macOS or new devices coming out, like the iPhone and the iPad, mm-hmm. it causes this crunch where everybody is trying to update their apps immediately prior to these events, immediately after these events, and sometime thereafter while they're absorbing new features. For example, like right. an Apple Pay, right? right. Or a continuity right. type stuff. Mm-hmm. And what this has led to is that instead of having, oh, okay, well, you know, an, an app update, you know, for a relatively minor update takes, you know, about two days, you know, maybe three or four days on the outset. And that's something you can manage and, and deal with um, from a planning basis. 
But what we've seen happen recently, and I've noticed it happened um, around the time that iOS 8 launched about a month ago, is that the review times, and you can go to appreviewtimes.com and see this for, for both iOS and the Mac App Store, have skyrocketed. To where, you know, it was taking something like, I haven't looked at it recently, but it was about 11 days. Yeah, it was, it was 10 days to today when I looked at it. And I can tell you that I know that for pretty much for a fact that about a year or two ago, it would take seven days for an app to go through if it was new and two or three days to go through if it was an update. Now, and I wasn't really paying attention around the time that iOS 7 launched. Do you think it's the same? Was it the same last year when iOS 7 first came out? I did, don't did have the speed bump. I don't recall for certain, but what I have seen over the the past year is that review times have been getting better for for app updates. So it was, oh, really? you know, about a week, then five days, and now it was about forty eight hours, so two days ish, sometimes less than that, and and that's fantastic. I love that. Um, instead, what happened to me fairly recently is that my app sat waiting for a review for seven days mm-hmm. and then spent two hours in review before being approved. And that was mm. maddening. Like that was a very important release that needed to come out and coincide with some other changes. Um, mm. And that's, that's not a tenable situation for, for developers or even for, you know, users. And that's interesting. Sorry. That's interesting that you say that that's new because historically for me, that was sort of the norm. It would sit in waiting for review for almost like clockwork a week. Uh, really? And, then, and wow. then we would go into review. And once it was in review, it's a matter of just a couple of hours and it's approved. I mean, historically, well, we, it's always been that way. We put it through a couple of, of uh, in, some, in some cases, like if I've got a small app that's like, you know, a couple of K in size and it's one language, they generally go through pretty quickly within within an hour or two of, of review. But some of our apps that have, you know, support 14 languages or whatever, I, I'm assuming that somebody has to go through and check all those different languages. And those ones go into review for sometimes a half a day or even a full day or even sometimes two days once they're in review. But but it's the waiting period, the queue to get into that review, review position is, is a problem. And I can tell you for, I think I mentioned last week, I don't know if I mentioned it in the podcast, but I'll mention it now. We added um, uh, a video preview to one of our apps, and um, there was there was a reason why Apple rejected it, right? And yet they rejected the whole binary for the app. They rejected the whole app altogether, and so we had to. So we decided to remove the video and just resubmit the app just to get it through. And that took it just went through today. That took seven days from when we resubmitted after just removing the video altogether. So this kind of it's I think there's still something broken in 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 the internal process of getting apps through, right? Yeah, just just to follow up on on what I said about historically there's a long waiting period. Uh I've I've actually noticed recently it's gotten a lot better so the the for for well-established apps that have a history of updates the total time from submission to approval is it can be very very quick. I mean, I've seen I've seen 24 hours for that on occasion. So um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it, it might it might be that we're just seeing a, a bottleneck because of the new versions and and uh, you know new versions of the of the OSs and uh, maybe the I, I don't know. Maybe it's just a transient thing. I, I think it's probably too soon to tell with, with the well, with so, think- so soon after the releases. And if I was to throw out a theory, too, I mean, um, would be this, is that the change between iOS 6 and iOS 7 was so great that it took people a longer time to update their apps. Once you know, once the WWCD was over and we knew when iOS 7 was going to ship, it took some time. In fact, you know, I had my nose to the grindstone when when uh, it shipped and we decided not to, to go through the whole process of, of, of updating our apps, for all of our apps for iOS 7. In fact, some took months to update because they just were low priority apps. But um, but this time there was such a little difference between iOS 7 and iOS 8. You could, you could get your app sort of, you know, go through and, and fix up all the deprecated processes and stuff like that and get your app through faster. So I think that may have created a crunch in terms of people submitting a whole bunch of apps all within the last three or four weeks, right? Yeah, it could be. I do yeah. think it's a crunch, and since it's a manual process, it, it, it doesn't scale very well, right, as I mentioned. Um, I, I fully expect that these review times will get better um, as the year goes on and we get away from the big yearly event of a, an iOS release. However, I, I 
I don't think that that absolves Apple of responsibility here, right? So it's not it's not something that scales very well. But when we say doesn't scale very well, we're not talking about a technical limitation, right? We're not running into, uh, you know, the, the speed of light being a, a limiting factor. The limiting factor here <laughs> is how much money Apple, with all of its billions of dollars, is mm. willing to spend on reviewers, especially around the time when they know that they're going to see more apps being reviewed. Right, like they they have all the stats of precisely how long it takes them on average to do apps in probably every category, right? And I, I think they could just spend a little bit more on staff while still maintaining the the quality level, right? They presumably go through some sort of app store review university course. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a solvable <laughs> problem, and it's very easy to solve. It's an expensive sure, just one. Throw to money solve. at it, yeah. Um, Aaron, weren't you saying last a couple of weeks ago that that Apple had a whole bunch of positions open for these kind of things? Oh, I don't know that they were hiring. They're probably always hiring for app reviewers, but uh, I was talking specifically about developers. Um, oh, okay, right, yeah. right, right, right. Well, we know that Apple had some, let's say, some uh, issues with QA over the past <laughs> month. <laughs> maybe it's over as simple the, as they over they, the past 24 hours you mean right right well yeah. it, maybe uh maybe they just diverted some of the people who normally are reviewing apps into doing right. testing and qa of of the uh, baseline oss sure. uh, and so just they they had fewer people available as possible mhm so is that about all you want to say about your grumpiness there Hamid? i am done being grumpy <laughs> Relatively ungrumpy, I have to say. That, that was pretty good. <laughs> well, it's funny. You stole his devil's advocate position, sorry, which, he norm- which he normally takes in, in the podcast. Um, okay. Well, I guess we'll, we'll uh, wrap things up as we normally do, and we'll go around the table and see if anybody has anything new or exciting or, you know, any new experiences they had last week, you know. Um, Jaime, do you have anything new or anything you'd like to talk about? I do. And my, my pick of the week this week is Apple Pay. Okay. So it's not exactly a new app, but it is newly available in iOS 8.1. If you have, um, in particular, a yeah. 6 or 6 Plus. Because mm-hmm. what I've experienced just today is buying something for the very first time with my iPhone 6 Plus. Right? So so for those of us Canadians, I was talking to some of my other uh, peers about, uh, American peers, about uh, what it, how it works. For those of us poor Canadians up here who don't have access to it, can you sort of... Give us a rundown on, on how it manifests and how it works and how you access it. Sure. So in this case, before I went into the office this morning, I decided to stop off at a CVS. It's a pharmacy, very similar right. to a Walgreens. And I, I don't know if there's a Canadian equivalent. Yeah, uh, Shoppers Drug Mart. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I needed something for breakfast and I just wanted some Quaker Oats instant oatmeal. You know, the kind sure. you just put some water in the microwave. Yeah. And I saw that their terminal had the little um, NFC piece. So over the top of the terminal, it has a, I don't remember exactly what it looks like. It's like a a hand with a credit card and, you know, radio waves coming off of it. Sure. Which let me know that I could use Apple Pay. And since the night before I had updated to 8.1, I'd already had configured my, my credit card with that. And it was really simple for me because... All I had to do was just go into Passbook, hit the little plus icon, and it gives you the, now the new option to say, oh, credit and debit cards. I was like, okay, great. Mm-hmm. I went in. It said, oh, do you want to use this one that you already have associated with iTunes? I said, sure, fantastic. And all I had to do is enter in my, um, I forget, what the, was it the CCV code, right? Right, The, the yep. code on the back of the card, verified that, and everything was hunky-dory. Hmm. So now, back to my, my morning going at, you know, in line at CVS, all I did was pull out my phone. It was still locked. All I did was pull out my phone, put it right over the reader. Apple Pay brings up the, um, the little credit card, uh, pseudo credit card info onto the screen. It wakes up the phone. And all mm-hmm. I have to do is just use Touch ID with my fingerprint, and I was paid for. Boom. Quick and easy. Cool. It was obviously faster than the explanation, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just spent a few minutes here describing something that took, I think, two to three seconds tops. Right, right, yeah. Right. And, and I, have to, I have to say that, yeah, I did exactly the same thing that Jaime was talking about. Set it up. It was very simple to set up. Uh, seamlessly, it let me use the same credit card for iTunes. I went into a place to get breakfast this morning. I was very excited to use it. And 
it brought up the credit card, said, do you want to use this? Tap here, touch ID. I tapped. Fail. They never got at the terminal. They they couldn't get any kind of acknowledgement that I was paying. So oh. the phone said, okay, the transaction's happening. The terminal never got it. I was never oh. charged for it, so that's good. <laughs> but it just it just never never went through. I ended up having to pay cash, which which wasn't fun. Now, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try again tomorrow. We'll see what happens. Uh, they they had said that they had had plenty of people coming through using it and mm-hmm. no problems, but it just it didn't work for me. I hate to say. Well, it. you don't you don't have to tap the device. You just have to hold your phone near it, right? And, and right. But it's the touching of the your fingerprint that that right. uh, triggers it, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and I had heard that it doesn't store the actual credit card number. It creates a special code, and that code gets sent to the credit card company. Right. And that's how they vet your, your card. Do you, do you get a record of the transaction somehow? Like, not through email, I'm sure, but, like, through some UI somewhere? Like, do you see what you spent using Apple Pay? Is there any kind of acknowledgement? Or do you have to wait for your credit card to send you a statement or, or what? No, it's right there in, in Passbook. So right now I'm looking at my last transaction, CVS mm-hmm. Pharmacy. $2.19. Does it show you like every transaction you make with Apple Pay or just the last one? I don't know offhand because that's the only one I've made. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's the first and only time I've made an Apple Pay. I'll have to yeah. do some follow-up. So I have, a, I have a list of six transactions that it says went through for $0. Oh, really? Because I tried Ooh. it over and over and over again. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I saw a post on Mac Surfer, Mac Surfer this morning. I didn't really read it, but it said something about some people were getting charged double for Apple Pay uh, things as well. I thought there was a – I saw some pictures on, online. I thought there was a sign that sort of said, now available Apple Pay kind of thing. You're just, you're just seeing the near-field communication kind of stuff, I guess, like the Android guys have been using for a while now? or I assume Android people can pay for things using near-field communication in the States already, right? Under various yeah. conditions, uh, aligning properly, yes, that's true. Right. Um, okay. and, and even here, right, so with, with what we saw, there's a little bit of, of uh, happenstance. I'm not sure exactly what happened in Mark's case, but yeah, I would suspect it's the same thing that you kind of casually tossed in there, Tim, and that's some folks, and it looks like it was uh, Bank of America um, customers were hit with double charges. Right? Oh, really? So. Mm-hmm. After further investigation, it looks like it's probably the bank's fault. So somewhere mm-hmm. between the bank and the payment processor, something wrong happened. Um, so it's it's not Apple Pay itself. I suspect it's, in Mark's case, something very similar, right? I, um, yep. I happen to be a Bank of America customer, and that's what I use today. And it worked just fine. So I'm not sure what combination of things. Maybe it's a combination of, uh, you know, the particular... Um, company that you're dealing with and maybe even the particular terminal, right? If, if the terminal that Mark went to wasn't updated properly uh, or had something corrupted and it's entirely possible that it didn't work in that case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it might actually be that the bank just hadn't had time to get it set up because I did get an email from the bank later in the day saying, Hey, your card is now available. Thanks for setting it up. Oh, really? <laughs> so, yeah. So even though I had set it up last night, it maybe you did, just You did a pay your while. credit card bill last week, didn't you? I did, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so it may just be that they didn't have it, you know, put into their system correctly. So uh, so when I tried to use it, they didn't know what to do with it at the time. Hmm. It's, it's a, possible. It's a brand new thing. I'm definitely going to go uh, take a look at a couple other places and see what the experience is like there. Um, yeah. And even though it was a, a great, wonderful seamless experience for me you know the best part of the whole experience really was the reaction from the cashier oh yeah yeah i'm not sure what she thought i was doing but when she saw the little you know thing light up and say yep paid she's like oh what just happened i was like oh (laughs) i I used my i used my phone i used apple pay to pay with it oh yeah she was just like so surprised like like, we live in the future now and i said yeah you know the iphone 6 and 6 plus can do that yeah, she, you ruined Aaron's fantasy of standing there in front of the cashier and going, you don't want to charge me for that sandwich. <laughs> Waving his hand, right? And then, Jaime, did you fly <laughs> off in your jetpack after you were done? <laughs> you know, that that was something I really should have done, right? It would have been yeah. epic. Drop the now, mic so and this, fly this away. Is this, or say, beam me up, Scotty. Is this, the, is this, this is the second official day that you could use Apple Pay in the States, right? Is that correct? Like, Because you had to have 8.1, right? 8.1, which came out, what, Monday? Monday. Mm-hmm. Monday, okay, okay. So it's the third day or fourth day. Cool. 
Um, Mark, do you have anything to add to today's yeah. conversation? So mine is mine is not actually anything that's new, but it was new to me. Um, this is a technology that I that I hadn't used before uh, in iOS, and to be honest, I didn't even really know it ex- knew it existed until until I had to do this. And these are the the directions that are built into MapKit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, you know, everybody everybody's used MapKit and and then reverse geo geocoding and things like that, geolocation, that kind of stuff. But but what this is is starting in iOS seven, you now have the ability to give MapKit two locations, and it'll actually calculate a route for you mm-hmm. and return you polygons that you can actually use directly as an overlay in your map. Right. So right. You, you send it off the two locations. It sends you these things back, and you just and you stick an overlay in your map, and it's got the route map uh, mapped out for you. So when you say poly, when you say polygons, you mean it it actually can tr- create the line for you, or there's an algorithm to create the line? Or, it creates or? the line for you. It actually okay. sends you sends you a bunch of objects that you just uh, create an overlay for directly. Yeah, uh, yeah. In your map, and it just works seamlessly. I mean, I, I was actually really happy about how easy it was to get that going. Uh, this was something that I thought was going to take a long time and a lot of effort, and it was just really simple and seamless. Cool. So I'm really happy about that. Yeah, I've done. I've done I did a, a, a virtual uh, jogging app, and, and there's a thing in the simulator where you can you can g- give it a starting point and, and tell it to pretend it's running somewhere, and, and it'll it actually starts from you know Cooper for uh, number one infinity loop and starts running away from there, um, and it actually I know what you mean about the whole rendering of the line because that's that's what this this example I was playing with was doing like that I wasn't doing the writing the the make any line it was actually making it for me yep cool yeah I played with the dropping the pins and having the you know the put the but that's the same thing you can do on the web as well mm-hmm. uh, dropping pins and having directions pop up or information meta, metadata about the location pop up cool okay well I have a couple of things to talk about one is uh, I've been I've had this on on my device for a couple of weeks now I guess almost a month now I have it on all of my iOS devices all my by my my uh, 3gs even my iPhone 4 my 5s my my iPhone 6 plus and my mini and it's called battery doctor and I've had a lot of people talk to me in the past about you know the the whole mythos around if you want to save your battery you got to go through and swipe all the apps to unload them and I read a post a while ago that, that that's actually incorrect because the whole process of opening and closing apps uses battery life as well. And when, you know, as we know as developers, when an app is in, in background, it's not really doing anything. It's just in a state where you can pick up and pick up where it left off when, when your app comes back into focus. But what Battery Doctor does, it does a couple of things that are kind of cool. One is it, you can you can use it to while you're charging your battery. So if you're not using your phone, you open up Battery Doctor, plug it in. And away you go, and it monitors the charging of the of the device and gives you a sort of report on the battery health, in terms of how how it's charging, and it even tells you when to unplug it when it's full up. But another couple of things it does, which is kind of cool, is it looks at the, it monitors the memory that's being used in your device, and it'll tell you at certain points during the day if you check it that your Mac, your device is running low on memory, and it allows you to go and free up some of the other memory that that other apps that you're not using are are using up. And it also clears up some of the memory caches that that those other apps are, are you know, the, the idle apps have have created on the device, and uh, have done that. And I've been using it for a number of weeks, and it's it's done it's been pre- kind of surprising um, in terms of how well it it gives me a better sense of what how my battery condition is and how much time it gives you a time you know how much what the charge is at and how much estimated time you have available on your device. Which you know as you, as we all know. The little battery icon in the top left-hand corner really doesn't, or right-hand corner doesn't really do much for you, right? In terms of reporting, you know how much time you have left, right? So, so that's Battery Doctor. Um, and the other thing I want to mention is uh, there's a conference coming up in February, um, run by RayWinderlich.com that uh, it's called RW RW DevCom, and it's in uh, Washington D.C. in February. It's going to cover iOS 8, Swift, and hopefully the Apple Watch content as well. Um, and it's geared towards the de- de- beginner developers as well as advanced developers. And one of the advantages of this conference as opposed to other conferences where they just gather speakers from around the world and talk about different things, it's all being organized as, as a team by all of the writers at uh, raywenderlich.com and all the editors. I just The reason I want to mention now is that uh, there's an early bird discount of $100 right now uh, if you if you register before October 31st 
Um, so that's one thing that people can get in on is the early bird thing. And also for listeners of our podcast, we have a promotion code to get an additional $50 off. So you can get $150 off the price of the conference. Um, I think it's $4.99 for the conference. Um, and we'll put that put that uh, link on our um, on our uh, show notes. And that's it's going to be uh, the code is going to be uh, MTJC for more than just code podcast. Um, and that's about all I've got to say about that. Um, so uh, w- once again, uh, Aaron, where can people find you? At Aaron Vay on Twitter, Aaron.Vay.ca on the web. And Jaime, where can people find you? At Dev with the Hair and devwithahair.com. And Mark, how about you? Mark R at smapsoft.com or www.smapsoft.com. Okay, and once again, my name is Tim Mitra. I'm here in Toronto, Ontario at IT Guy Technologies, and I'm uh, at T- Tim Mitra or at T I M M I T R A on Twitter. So that's it for this week, and we'll catch up with you next week. And so from everybody, let's all say goodbye. Bye bye. Goodbye. Bye. Okay, we'll see you guys next week. Okay, thanks. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find show notes and a summary of each episode. We list links to items that we talk about and links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave us a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also retweet our tweets about the show. Once again, our the podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. And uh, that's it. Thanks a lot. Um, and uh, I'm here with Aaron Vay from Whitby, Ontario, and we're going to talk about testing microphones for podcasting. Isn't this fun? Tim, I you, can, I'm fantastic, and I'm so excited to be here. Let's let's test. Let's test. Are we ready to test? I am okay. totally um, ready to test. Should we do like a four-part harmony with two people? Absolutely not. There's no singing involved. This is this is one of my <laughs> contractual obligations. There's going to okay, be no well, singing. I'll take care of all the singing Good. and playing and dancing and stuff. You do okay. that.